0: The Why Me Project, an exclusive presentation of Faith Strong Today.
1: Episode number?
0: 211.
1: 12.
0: <gasps> I always get it wrong.
1: <laughs> you, were, you were close. I was. But you didn't win, unfortunately. Mummy brain. Mommy brain. <laughs> sure. Uh, our guest this week, um, I'll say this, Holly, because when you had said, oh, by the way, we have an opportunity to uh, speak with Bill. I was like, Bill, who? And you're like, Bill Adsett. I'm like, I I love that guy. We had a chance to, uh, we did an event together uh, about five years ago. And so now that we have a chance to sit down and talk about uh, your life, Bill, I'm very excited. Bill Adsett, my friend, how are you? I'm good, Johnny and Holly. We like to ask the skill testing question because we never know where it's going to go. Bill, who are you and where did you come from?
2: (laughs) Uh, My name is, uh, right now, it's Bill Hadzett, but maybe I'll tell you how I got that name. I'm a member of the Teltan First Nations, which is located in the northwest corner of B.C.
0: What was life like growing up in northern B.C.?
2: I was born in um, Telegraph Creek. I remember my first five years of life there. Uh, Both my parents were um, alcoholics and so much violence in the home. And they divorced and separated when I was five and ended up leaving Telegraph Creek and ended up in the residential school in Whitehorse with my brother and I and my two sisters moved from there and went on to live in Wrangell, Alaska, which is just at the mouth of the Stikine, which is uh, in our traditional territory.
0: I mean, you're five. My, my youngest is five. What was that like <laughs> knowing that you were going to be going away from your family?
2: All I remember is that uh, my dad took my brother and I to white horse, dropped us off at the residential school. And I can still remember that day now uh, where uh, the, I, I remember watching my dad and the principal talking, kind of whispering off to one side. And next thing I knew, he was turning around and walking away. And I kind of gathered that I was going to be left there. So I remember just grabbing him onto his leg and holding on and trying to mm. I remember I was crying and all he did was he kind of peeled me off of his leg, walked away, and I didn't see him more than two or three times in the next 10 years. I was at the residential school year round because I didn't have anywhere to go in the summer. Like most kids got out of the residential school, but I didn't. My brother and I were there. And during my time, I mean, you've heard a lot of horror stories about what happened to kids at the residential school. You know, I was one of those kids because I was there. You know, I was uh, physically and sexually abused and bad stuff that happened to kids there happened to me. I was just mentioning the other day, when I got out of the residential school at age 15, later realized that uh, there was a lot of trauma in my life. I didn't know anything about these uh, 10 adverse childhood experiences that they talk about nowadays, like uh, like abuse, physical, emotional, sexual, neglect, physical and, and emotional, and then family violence and uh, divorce and substance abuse. If you have four of these, you're in trouble. By my count, I had nine out of 10. I didn't realize at age fifteen, how messed up I was.
1: How big was the school? How many how many people were uh, going to the school at that time?
2: Between seventy five and hundred, there was constant uh, changes every year. But I think I believe there's probably about a hundred kids.
1: Okay, so then at the age of fifteen, you get out. Now, did you mm-hmm. run away? Was it? Did you graduate? How is it that you were able to get out of it?
2: The school just shut down, and I think my brother and I were the only ones there. They probably didn't know what to do with me. So what they did was they found me a place to stay in Whitehurst in a renovated attic with a hot plate to cook my meals. And I was supposed to have looked after myself by then, but I had no clue about how to even look after myself. I had no job. I mean, 15 years old, what do you know? Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's amazing when I think back, I don't know to this day how the RCMP found out that there's a young kid wandering around town kind of on his own, they picked me up off the street and took me to court the very next day and made me a of the government and put me into a wonderful foster home. Not only did they find me a place to live, but they had a job lined up for me at the local sports store, so I was employed too.
0: (laughs) Nice. I find it interesting though, because right now, as we we know, there's been a lot of conversations about residential schools in the news after what they found in Kamloops to hear that, you know, your, your dad brought you to a residential school because you had no other options or I don't know. I just, you hear all the stories and I just think, why, how? When I think back
2: now, as I mentioned, both of them were alcoholics. Mm -hmm. and i'm sure he had no idea what to do with two young boys i'm not sure in those days that he might even have been asked to drop us off at the residential school because they were gathering all the kids up from from telegraph creek anyway and and into different residential schools so Mm. he could have been requested i i don't know
1: so you're 15 you're awarded to uh the the state or the province you go to a foster family You, you have a job at a sports store so things Seem to be looking up. What's kind of then the next part of your life? Are you are you in Whitehorse now? For the you know, at some point you end up moving. Where do you go from there?
2: Her husband Earl Gates was working with the Department of Transport, transport, and in, 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 as the fire chief for the airport. But he passed away a year after I was there. So because he he was no longer working, she could not stay in government quarters. So mm-hmm. she had to move. She ended up moving to. Uh, Rimby, Alberta. I went from one foster home to another foster home, and uh, I ended up in working in Cassiar, BC for a summer. And To this day, I don't know how she ever found me in Cassiar and sent me a letter asking me if I would be willing to leave the Yukon and go to Rimby, Alberta to go to high school. I left the Yukon and I ended up in Rimby, Alberta, It was very interesting. Um, My first day in school in Rimby, uh, I got called into the principal's office and he says to me, come into this school, he says, "Uh, you have three strikes against you. He said, first of all, he said, you're the only Indian kid in the school, which, you know, they used the word Indian then. And then he said, the second thing is you're older than everybody in your class, which is true. I didn't realize I had failed. I was two or three years behind. And then this third thing he said, your name, Belfry. Will never work in this school from now on, you're Bill Atzett. So I've mm. been Bill Atzett ever since. <laughs> he said it didn't, it didn't fit in the school.
0: So you go to school, you get a new identity. Did you feel like it was a fresh start? When I think
2: back of Rimby, I, I did think the kids there and the school, everything about it was very positive. They treated me very mm. well. The biggest downfall was when I started to 15, when I was about, oh, I don't know, maybe it was about 18 then. I, I think all of this effects of the residential school started to hit me, and I started really kicking over the traces, started drinking, becoming violent, and all of the others. So then I, I quit and joined the military, left school, dropped out.
1: I was wondering if you going to a residential school growing up to then all of a sudden you're going to a, a local public school in Rimby, mm-hmm. seeing the difference, and if you were you know in trouble after school, if you thought that, oh, it's going to be like it used to be, where maybe things were a bit different and with as you had said you being quote unquote different from everybody else by the sounds of it it was it was a good experience until you then just started to realize oh man what i went through is is quite traumatic
2: well yeah that's exact that's exactly right you know that's true i mean i think the reason i fit in because you know not everything that happened at the residence school was bad Right. And not every, you know, when you hear about the resident school, not every one of the supervisors were bad. So when, when I think about it, I'm going to guess during my time at the residential school, there's probably 60, 70 of supervisors and people that want, that worked their way through the school and helped. And out of all of them, there's only two that abused me. So, mm-hmm. you know, the impression that every one of these guys were bad, it's not true. So, I mean, I've, I had some positive experiences, like they, they, they taught us how to play hockey, gave us sports. And that's the reason why I fit in very well in RIMBY is because I was a very good hockey player, and very good at sports. To me, that was a huge advantage of, of just being there.
0: 18 years of age is kind of the, that coming to age or coming into adulthood. There's hopes, there's dreams. What did you think the future would hold for you?
2: Holly, it's very interesting you ask because truthfully, when I think back, I never had any plans. Even quitting and joining the military, that was just a spur of moment decision. I'm going to quit and join the military, which I did. Ended up in St. John, Quebec, in <laughs> basic training.
0: And that's so, not an easy program to go through.
2: <laughs> that's where my problems came to fruition. Because of the residential school, I hated authority. And I really had uh, anger toward white people because of, that's all I seen in the school, right? right? And when you get there and you get all these corporals and white guys yelling at you to do this and to do that, just I rebelled all the time. My four years there, there was full of rebellion and they finally kicked me out because I wouldn't listen.
1: At some point, there's a change in you though, because mm-hmm. if you're dealing, you're dealing with all this authority and there's this hate for white people. You are the man that you are today because there is a change of your heart. There is a change of who you were. At what point did that happen?
2: The change started when I was in the military. I did very well, you know, even though I had a lot of problems, I did really well in in their courses. As a matter of fact, I came out on top, even though while I was there, I spent, I think I did two terms in the military prison. Uh, even that, uh, I managed to graduate at the top of my class. So because I did that, they gave me the option of choosing where I wanted to go, and I chose Nemeo Air Base because it was close to Rimby. So we started going down there, and I started dating. There was a, this is a funny story. There was a couple of us, um, Len and I, a good friend of mine, who were going to Rimby, and we were dating these two young ladies, and. Uh, he was taking out this girl named Val, and I was kind of with this girl Judy. We weren't really serious. So anyway, one day, one day he says, uh, "He says, Bill. He says, I really want to d- date Judy. Can we switch?" <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, all, all, all I said was, all "I said, well, let's talk to them." So, so we went down to have the chat, and they switched. And and I tell you, Val and I started dating. Her and I, we've been married fifty-five years this year. <laughs>
0: Nice. It was yes, a good sir. switch. <laughs>
2: yeah, good. Man, a, here's another story. We didn't know anything about each other, right? She didn't know anything about me. So after we got married, she found out I just got out of residential school with all my problems. And I found out she just got out of reform school with all, with all her problems.
0: Oh, man. <laughs> oh, man. No. Marriage is tough as it is. How did you guys navigate <laughs> yeah. that? I feel like 55 years, you've got some tips for us.
2: To me, that was a gift from God. When you talk about change, she was a gift from God. I I tell you, I tell people when we got married, I was 22 and she was 17. But really the facts were I was uh, 22 going on 17 and she was 17 going on 22. (laughs) I was the (laughs) immature one.
1: So if you're you're now twenty-two and you're married, did you feel like this is this is your chance to maybe make a new, make a change, to to no. you know, make something different of Bill? No, no. That's when all my problems
2: came to fruit, started really kicking in. It was really tough on my wife. I I tell you that. It was it was not easy on her. And uh it's only through God's grace that she stuck, hung out and made it work, you know. But I mean as I mentioned, I got kicked out of the military, so and then I had to find a job in Edmonton, and then I applied to uh, Transport Canada, became a flight service specialist after a year in Ottawa, and then he moved, moved us to uh, uh, the Yukon, Burwash, and then Uranium City, and that's where my, where my life changed. That was in about, oh, we've been married in 64, about 10 years after we got married, mm. I ended up. Because of my past, I was violent and just so full of anger that I ended up in a lot of trouble. I ended up in jail in in Edmonton over the weekend, you know. And that's the first time in my life that I really, really thought about my life because I was, you know, I I could have ended up in jail for a long time. I could have lost my job, my family, everything, and everything. So I got thinking about um, about the residential school. I remember in the residence school, it was run by the Baptist church. They always talked about God, and I hated Christianity with a passion because of what happened to me, right? That weekend in the jail, sitting there, I got thinking about, all right, what did they say about, about God and in the school? And they always talked about how God can help you change your life and all of this if you pray and all that. Well, you know what? I was at the end of my rope. I didn't have anywhere to go, so I prayed. My first time in my life I ever prayed for God to help me. An amazing thing, I mean, I tell people to this day, I changed over the weekend. I went home and I told my wife that what happened in jail and life changed after. But don't get me wrong, it was a slow, long process. I'm still in the process of changing, it, even though I'm 77 years old now. So you never you never can say you're you you reached. Perfection, never. But you know, I mean, life changed after that, and uh, I I credit so many people now when I look back on my life. First of all, my wife for sticking together, for giving me all the support she did.
0: Was she a Christian as well, or? Was your transformation a door opening up for her as well?
2: Yeah, that's because, yeah, it's only after. She said she always wanted to go to church, but she wouldn't. She said, I didn't want to go to church because I knew if, if you did, you'd just leave. So we both changed and life turned out very well. So, you know, looking back now, I, I, what I credit in my change in life is, uh, is, is first of all, is is, uh, is Jesus really, you know, in the jail when I prayed. Jesus and God. So I would say Jesus was the first thing that made me change. Mm -hmm. And then the thing is the other is others. Others, I mean, especially my wife. And all during my career with the federal government, I always had people there who were willing to reach out and help and really. So I I credit others. And the last thing is yourself. You know, without having, I was <clears throat> presented with many opportunities in life, but I always look back and think: Now, if I didn't really exert myself and take the time to go to university and all the rest of it that I've done, it wouldn't happen. So I always think my acronym for life is Joy. Jesus first, other second, yourself last, to make it to make uh, to make my you know m- make life work. And uh, yeah, I I mean, and the, you know what I learned what I learned when I, that weekend in jail was, is I had to ask for forgiveness for, for what what I've done, really, because I mean, I was, I was a horrible man. Had to pray. And when I prayed, I asked for forgiveness to change my life. And then I realized the only other way I was going to change is if I forgave all of those people who did damage to me. Because if without forgiveness, I would have carried around that anger all my life and still that resentment and been full of anger. But you know what? Once I for, you know, forgave people, that's when my life really changed. It just, it just, you know, that's the problem with the residential school, you know? Uh, there's so much anger uh, in the Aboriginal community and rightly so because of what happened at the residential school, but people will never change. Nothing's gonna change unless we forgive. Yeah, I just think that's so important.
1: Speaking of importance, how important is it to uh, remember heritage? You, you grew up in a, in a small reservation to, you know, being moving to residential. How important is it for you to think back on to uh, your heritage and where you came from?
2: You can imagine how I felt as an Aboriginal person getting out of the residential school. Fang, you're so angry. And uh, actually, anybody who got out of the residential school, a lot of them, we were, we were deaf. We're ashamed of being Indian, as they, as they would say then. ashamed of being Aboriginal because I, what really struck me was when I was in the military, I got in some trouble in, in uh, Detroit, got thrown in jail because of being drunk and et cetera, et cetera. And uh, they asked me, they said to me, look, are you Aboriginal? I said, no. They said, if you tell us you're a Canadian Indian, we'll let you go. And I was so embarrassed, I wouldn't even tell them that. So I took to the consequence of, of my time in jail. Because I wouldn't admit, that's how, how ashamed I was of being an Aboriginal person. But now, I tell you now, I'm very proud of it. I, I, my heritage means a lot. My kids and grandkids, they fly their flags, Aboriginal flags, they wear the Aboriginal t-shirts. They're all very proud of it because, you know, when you think back, it's so amazing. When I think back of my family, one person changed, I changed. And it changed my wife, my kids, my grandkids, and my great grandkids. The whole direction of our family changed because of one person. Mm-hmm. So you think how, how how powerful that is by by one person changing. It changes the destiny of my whole family.
0: It's yeah. when you think about your experiences growing up, and it's you know you say Jesus is the J and joy for you. Um, but yet your introduction to Jesus might not have been, you know, who he was. He was kind. He was loving. And I often hear people talk about, I think it's called Stockholm Syndrome. And so I just want to talk a little bit about that, where some people would say, you became a Christian because somehow now you identify with those who had abused you. It's like one of those really odd phenomenons that happens when people are in a traumatic situation, but I don't get that from hearing your story at all. There seems to be so much more to it. So I'm I'm just curious to know, was it because of the relationship with Jesus or, or something else that helped you love him as, as your savior? I I get, I get a
2: number of emails and so on and so forth from, from other Aboriginal people. And the, one of the comments that was made is, <clears throat> how can any Canadian Aboriginal person go to church, especially what they, what the churches have done to us? That's the sentiment out there. And, and uh, when I think about it, that's exactly what your program is. Why me? Why me? Why did I change? Why was I given that opportunity in jail to, why did I even get the thought to think about that, To to remember what I was taught, even though it was, hateful to me all i can say is is uh, god spoke to me what i i have no other explanation i mean how how can a person switch like that and 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 just do that i wondered why me but i'm grateful i tell you i am so i don't have nothing to complain about in life you know when when i think about what happened when i think about the bible god says i will be a father to the fatherless my goodness god has given me everything in life food, shelter, clothing, and education, a job, a beautiful family, friends, everything in life that a person would want from a father I have received. And I am so grateful. And uh, yeah, I've got nothing
1: to complain about in life. It's over just this last little bit that, you know, we, we found out what had happened in Kamloops. But yourself, your brother there are hundreds, there are thousands of Aboriginal people who knew what was going on. What is your reaction to it's now 2021 and finally somebody is doing something about this? Yeah. Well, I mean,
2: since this came out, I had a few dark days because, you know, I was immediately started thinking about uh, just about my experience. But then I got thinking about about Kamloops. People always they don't think about this, but how did the parents feel when one day they wake up and all the kids are gone and it's quiet in the community? How mm-hmm. about the grandparents? So you think, well, right away, there's two generations, the grandparents and the parents, and now the kids are destroyed. That's three generations. So now it's going on to the fourth and sometimes fifth, even great
1: grandkids. We hear about it or, or we heard that it, you know, it had happened, but it's not until something like this comes to the news and is brought to light. They're like, oh, dang. This was legit serious. Why didn't we do something about this?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, you know, you even gets to why did not we do? I, I just think about, you know, this uh, request from the Aboriginal community to the Catholic Church and the Pope to, to uh, give us an apology. And uh, my comment, I was on a call the other day with an MP, and I, I said, you know what, as an Aboriginal person, I don't want an apology. Even though I didn't go to the Catholic Church, I don't want an apology. If we as a group of people have to beg and ask for an apology, to me, it's very demeaning as an Aboriginal person. Why would you have to ask, beg for an apology? An apology is only meaningful if they gave it voluntarily with, with some real compassion behind what they say.
0: How do we move ahead from this What's what would be your suggestions? Because now, I mean, for me growing up, we learned very little about residential schools, and it just sounded like oh, it was just a school they went to. Like that was as far as my knowledge. But now, as stories come out, and you know, your the communities are being so brave in sharing what's happened to them, and we've seen now with technology the devastating effects that has happened. How do we get Closure, if you ever get closure, how do we move on together in a, in a healthy way?
2: Well, I, I think you, you hit the nail on the head when you said uh, you're learning about it. To me, that's that's the key. Canadians should know and learn about what happened to the residential school and remember. Exactly. It's like, you know, the, to me is why do you have remembrance today? Why do you want to, you remember, you don't want to forget what happened, right? Yeah. So that it doesn't happen again. If we educate, if uh, Canadians are well educated on what happened to the residential school, they're fully aware and they, they want to remember so that it never happens again. To me, knowledge is that. So, you know, because you understand what happened, you can, then you can understand the plight of, of the Aboriginal communities where there's always high unemployment, high incarceration you know, poor water and high unemployment, et cetera, those stats are dismal. So you can kind of, okay, this is what happened to the group of people and this is why they are there. But you know what? To me, there's hope. The average people are realizing that we have to work together and start working ourselves. We can't depend and wait for for anybody really to, to help us. I mean, I mean they're, they're, don't get me wrong. I mean, any help you get is good. But still, it's like yourself, like I just mentioned yourself, you have to take the initiative ourselves to do that.
0: For someone who is struggling with forgiveness, what would you say to them? It's not an
2: easy thing to do. You wrestle with this continuously, right? It took me quite a few years to really forgive because, I mean... You know, to me, I think it's a slow process. Like uh, once you forgive, and your life starts changing, like mine did for the better, right? Because and and as your life changes for the better, to me, it seems like your thinking kind of takes on a different uh, stream of thought, and you start thinking more rational about what happened, and, and then the, it can, then, then you come to the conclusion: yes, forgiveness is 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 what really is the key to to healing.
1: Five years ago, I had a chance to, uh, we had dinner, had a chance to hear you speak, and uh, we fast forward to where we are now, my friend, Uh, still an amazing storyteller. I'm so glad that we were able to sit down and uh, share some time, Bill. I appreciate you taking some time and doing this with us.
2: Oh, thank you for giving the opportunity. It, it It
1: was great. It seems as though, Holly, over the last year or two, change seems to be one of those operative words in the sense that we need to change over things that have happened in the past that we can now change in the future.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it just seems like people have um, more open ears, if you will. They're Mm -hmm. willing to listen. Uh, They're willing to do the work to learn about what happened and how do we uh, just not justify, but how do we learn so we can move on and and you know help these communities have justice because there 's so many different yeah. communities it 's almost this unifying thing we 've all been wronged <laughs> some you know right now we 're talking about our indigenous brothers and sisters and how do we move ahead better? How do we um, walk hand in hand and I, I, they are important questions that we have to ask, and I just pray that. Like I said, in a few years, 10 years, 20 years, that it's just the healing is so much further down the road and uh, we don't ever have to experience this again.
1: You can reach out to us. We would love to talk with you, whether you're emailing us, whether you're jumping on the socials, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and all the places that you could download our podcast too.
0: Exactly. Or you can always head to faithstrongtoday.com.